Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. How do we reach the world with the gospel? I have to tell you there are a few questions that I agonize over more than that one. And I don't think that's just because I'm a pastor or church planter. Yes, I understand that as a pastor, I'm probably going to wrestle with that question more than most. And that's especially true given that this church essentially started from scratch. And so it only makes sense I'm going to think about this question more than most. In a sense, it's, I guess you could say it's my job to think about it. But understand the reason why I am a pastor, the reason why I decided to help plant a church, is because I think this is a question that every Christian needs to ask themselves. Christ has left his church here on the planet for the explicit purpose of making disciples. That means that every single one of us should be preoccupied with this question. And it just so happens that for me, the answer to that question included entering pastoral ministry, but it's really a question that all of us need to ask. It's a question you need to be asking. So how do we do it? How do we reach the world with the gospel? I have to tell you, I wake up every morning with this question on my mind. And I'd be lying if I stood up here and told you that I'm encouraged by our prospects. Just the opposite, actually. The truth is, I often feel overwhelmed. You know how we recently went through this whole Sunday school class on worldviews? Well, that was all spurred on by my own reflections on this question over the past several years. You see, as I've wrestled with this question, as I've tried to figure out how to advance the gospel in our culture, in particular in our community, I keep coming to the same conclusion, and that's the fact that the philosophical divide between us and the world is simply too great, and it's only getting wider. I've shared the statistics with you recently, so I'm not going to do it again, but you look at where the average American is now in terms of their understanding of the world and the direction they're trending, and it doesn't look good. I see all that, and honestly, I feel overwhelmed. I know I've been left here to advance the gospel as a Christian, and I'd like to think that I've made it a point to wake up every day with that singular purpose on my mind, but then I look at what has to happen for that to take place, and I'm overwhelmed. I simply don't see how I'm ever going to be able to bridge that gap. And I have to say, if you don't share that same feeling, I think you've got one of two problems. Either you've grown apathetic about the advancement of the gospel, meaning the reason you don't feel overwhelmed is because you don't quite care, quite frankly, or you've got your head in the sand. Either you yourself have been so influenced by the world that you become blind to the difference between what the Bible says about who we are and what, uh, we, be- what we believe and what's taking place culturally, Or again, you become too distracted to care. You don't see it because you're too preoccupied with other things to take notice. You should feel overwhelmed. Because this is an overwhelming situation that we're facing. So what do we do? How do we reach the world with the gospel? How are we supposed to engage an increasingly secular culture with the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ? This is a question we're going to explore in this morning's text. You see, I know I may paint a bleak picture here today, but quite honestly, there's been bleaker. 
You've heard me say during the past couple of months that we're heading into what sociologists call a post-Christian culture. Well, guess what? The church has been here before. In fact, the only way you end up with a post-Christian culture is if you first have a Christian culture. You have a culture that's largely influenced by Christianity, and the only way you end up with a Christian culture is if it emerges from a pre-Christian culture. And that's because no culture starts under the influence of Christianity. It begins pagan, and then as the gospel gains more and more traction among its people, it eventually becomes Christian in its bearings. And it's only after it's undergone this conversion from pre-Christian to Christian that it can then become post-Christian. In other words, the situation that you and I are facing, as bleak as it may seem, is not new territory for the church. Again, we've, we've been here before, and worse. And even more than this, but not only has the church faced this situation before, but it found its way out of it. It actually managed to exert such influence on the surrounding culture that it would go from pre-Christian to Christian. How did it do that? How does that work? I think we discover part of the answer to that question in this morning's passage. This morning's passage, of course, is written by the Apostle Paul. And as you might imagine, this question, how do we reach the world with the gospel, that's a question that Paul himself wrestled with. Paul, of course, was commissioned by Christ to serve as the apostle to the Gentiles. And this means that Paul not only had to think through the best ways to share the gospel, but he had to figure out how to share it with a largely pagan culture. So what conclusions did he come to? I think we see the answer here in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Let's go ahead and read the text together and see what he has to tell us. Once again, that's 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In the passage I just read, we discover two principles for proclaiming the gospel in a philosophically or spiritually hostile society. Again, that's two principles of gospel proclamation in a spiritually hostile society. Society, And that's every society, by the way. That's every culture. So you might just call this two principles for gospel proclamation, period, full stop, because these are really universal principles. Still, I present it this way because I want you to understand even more specifically that these principles should apply even when, or perhaps even most especially, when we're encountering a culture like the one that we're facing right now. And given the importance of this topic, we're going to look at the, just the first of these two principles here this morning. Once again, these are two principles for proclaiming the gospel in a philosophically or spiritually hostile society. And I strongly encourage you to adopt these the next time you find yourself feeling the pressure to make the gospel acceptable to the world, be that to a friend or a family member or a co-worker. The first principle is this. Number one, 
Declare the cross of Christ alone. Paul responded to the intellectual and spiritual divide between him and the Corinthian culture by declaring the cross of Christ alone. We see this in verses 1 and 2. He says, and, when I, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. As Paul begins these verses, he begins the very short but significant word, which I think we need to discuss to comprehend the full weight of what he's saying here. He says, And I, when I came to you, brethren, and in the Greek, the very first word in that statement is kago. Paul uses it here and at the beginning of verse 3, which is the start of our next point, when he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. This word is actually formed from two Greek words. It's chi, which means and, and ego. You might think of the word ego, ego, which means I. You put the two words together and you get kago, kind of like how folks from the South will combine you and all and say y'all, right? That's what Paul is doing here, kago. The word is important because each component part helps us understand significantly what Paul is doing in these verses. The first word is and. And it tells us that Paul is not picking up a new thought here. He's actually continuing an old one. And the second one, once again, is I, and it's emphatic. Paul isn't just saying, and when I came to you, but, and when I came to you. I like the way the ESV captures this. It repeats Paul's use of the term, I. It says, and I, when I came to you. Paul's making it a point to draw attention to himself here. And that's because the issue that Paul is addressing, this issue that he's continuing to address, has to do with his style of ministry. This is now our sixth week in this section of 1 Corinthians that spans from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way through the end of chapter 4. And as I've pointed out in our previous messages on this text, the presenting issue in this passage is rivalry. Paul's received a report from Chloe's people. Uh, Chloe, by the way, likely a resident of Ephesus, where Paul is writing this letter. Well, Chloe's people have brought back this report of what's going on in Corinth. And what they've discovered is that there's this twisted theology taking place, wherein the Corinthians have come to believe that there are different schools within Christianity, each with its own set of advantages and disadvantages. And not only are they using these distinctions to compete with each other, but, as we'll see by the end of chapter 4, some have even come to think that they've surpassed the Apostle Paul himself. We're going to see this as we get deeper into this letter. The Corinthians have apparently taken issue with some of Paul's teaching. That's actually why he's writing this letter, to address some of these things that they're taking issue with. And you may wonder where that's coming from, where this church could get the idea that they can actually disagree with the Apostle Paul. Well, it's coming from this belief among the Corinthians that they've surpassed Paul, that by virtue of their gifts, they're now wiser in Paul. In short, this church has become incredibly proud. And this pride is not only causing these rivalries in the church, but it's causing them to look down their nose at Paul and his ministry. In particular, it would seem that they're questioning Paul's method 
of ministry. The scripture gives us several indications that Paul had a relatively plain style of preaching. Or at the very least, that he was plain by Corinthian standards. Uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul himself observes that some of his opponents apparently made the charge that while his letters were weighty and strong, his bodily presence was weak and his speech of no account. That's 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. So there was at least the accusation, if not the perception, that Paul was not a very skilled public speaker. And for a church like the one at Corinth, that was a pretty big deal. Eloquence and persuasiveness were highly esteemed characteristics among public speakers in the ancient Greco-Roman world. In fact, they were essential. A man simply couldn't expect his audience to give him the time of day if he didn't present his content powerfully and persuasively. And Paul didn't speak this way. We saw this back in verse 17 of chapter 1. As Paul addresses these rivalries, he not only challenges their understanding of the, per, the, the person and work of Christ, but he says he was glad that he didn't baptize many of them. Chapter 1, verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul notes that he didn't use words of eloquent wisdom in his ministry. The Corinthians found this style of communication unsophisticated. It lacked the sort of flair that would make one respectable in Corinthian society. It was too simple to be taken seriously, too plain. And it's for this reason that many of the Corinthians seem to be turning to Apollos in his more persuasive approach instead of Paul, and even treating Apollos as if he's offering a different school of thought within Christianity. Paul learns of all this from Chloe's people, he, and he determines that before he can address any of the other concerns that the Corinthians have written to him about, and there are several concerns we'll see that they've written to him about, but before he can get to that, he first needs to address the pride that's leading them to discount his counsel, and that includes setting the record straight regarding his ministry. That's what's taking place here in chapters 1 through 4. Paul is defending his ministry. And here in chapters 1 and 2, he's explaining that his style of communication actually was very intentional. In other words, it wasn't as if Paul adopted a plain style of delivery simply because he was unable to speak persuasively or eloquently. I mean, we can see in the rest of Paul's letters that he could engage in logical arguments and flowery speeches with the best of them. In fact, some have even commented that chapter 13 of this very same letter, Paul's great treatise on love, actually rivals even the writings of Plato for its Greek eloquence. So it wasn't like Paul just couldn't speak eloquently or persuasively. And neither was it because he was simply too naive or stupid to understand the cultural importance of persuasive speech. I think we'll see this in just a moment. He was well aware of the fact that he could try to persuade his audience. And his audience even expected him to persuade them. Rather, Paul is explaining that his style was plain because he made the very intentional choice to proclaim the gospel instead of persuade with it meaning his style was on purpose. He meant to give a very simple presentation of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25, Paul demonstrates that he doesn't preach according to worldly wisdom because God doesn't save according to human wisdom. He saves by power. 
He says that God intentionally saves through a message that appears foolish to the world. Paul explains that the gospel is actually contrary to human wisdom, and the only reason the Corinthians believe in it in the first place is because God saved them through his power. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, Paul then gives evidence to the fact that God saves by power instead of human wisdom by pointing to the Corinthians as proof of that fact. The reality is that the Corinthian church was made up of the low in society. They were the foolish, the ignorant, the weak, the base. And Paul explains that God has done it this way. He saved a foolish people through a foolish message for a very good and wise reason. And so that's, and that's so that God can humble all people through the gospel. The scripture says that man has fallen into sinful rebellion against God, that all mankind seeks their independence from God, and in response to this rebellion, God has designed the gospel in such a way that when a person comes to salvation in Jesus Christ, they do so on their knees. They're left with absolutely no reason to place their confidence in their wisdom or their power or their riches. They're left to trust in God alone as the source and giver of all good things. In short, Paul doesn't preach according to worldly wisdom. First, because of how salvation works. God doesn't save according to anything a person has that they can boast in. Not their wisdom, not their power, not their nobility, nothing. And then second, he does it this way because of why salvation works. God is seeking to humble a rebellious people so that they will once again rely on the only one in whom they should have confidence, and that's God alone. So that's what Paul has been doing already in chapters 1 and 2. And now as Paul continues his thought through the use of this cargo and I, we can see that Paul has actually come full circle in his explanation. In verse 17, Paul said that he didn't preach in cleverness of speech so as not to avoid the cross of Christ. In verses 18 through 31, Paul has explained how preaching in cleverness of speech would avoid the cross of Christ. Now he's providing a kind of therefore that takes us back to the beginning of the argument. Because of the truths revealed in verses 18 to 31, Paul did not preach in cleverness of speech. You can think of it like this. Chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, reveals that God intends for the content of the gospel to be received by the world as foolish. Verses 26 to 31 reveals that God intends for the converts of the gospel to be received by the world as foolish. Therefore, Paul explains right here, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, that God intended for the communication of the gospel to be received as foolish as well. Now, I want you to pay close attention to what I'm saying here because you may think when I say that we engage a philosophically hostile culture by declaring the cross of Christ alone, that I'm talking about the content of our message. That I'm saying you preach the gospel, which is the good news of salvation by faith in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, not social change or moral improvement or spiritual empowerment or something like that. We talked about this a few weeks back. I said, chapter 1, verse 17, Paul explains that he was glad he didn't baptize many of the Corinthians. 4, verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And I said that this idea of baptism in its context is probably connected 
with some notion of spiritual empowerment. The Corinthians are probably boasting in their baptism because they're connecting the act of baptism by one teacher or another with the type of spiritual gift they've received. Or if not that, they're at least using baptism as a way to indicate their own greatness according to the social connections they have with one church leader or another. You know, the greater or more famous the teacher, the better the social connections, something like that. And Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize many of you. Because I wasn't sent to do that. Rather, I was sent, number one, to preach, and number two, to preach the gospel. Meaning we have both the activity and the content there. Paul was sent to proclaim an idea, and that idea is the news of salvation, of forgiveness, of reconciliation to God through the death of Jesus Christ. He didn't come to tell them how to perform miracles, nor is his message one of social advancement. Instead, he was sent to proclaim one message in that salvation through the cross of Christ. Again, you might be tempted to think that this is what I'm talking about when I say that Paul shows us here that we engage the culture by declaring the cross of Christ alone. That I'm saying you declare Christ's substitutionary death, not his moral teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, for instance. That our message is how to be reconciled to God, not how to be a good person, or how to usher in a utopian society. And there's definitely, definitely an element of that in what Paul is saying here. If you look here, verse 2, Paul says that when he came to the Corinthians, he, quote, decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There appears to be a singularity of content in that statement, is there not? Paul saying, I have one message to share with you. And I, was, I decided, I determined to know nothing but that. But I want you to pay attention to that word for at the beginning of verse 2. Paul says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That for is explanatory, meaning it's actually responding to something that Paul has just said. It's giving us a bit more detail about something that Paul said in verse 1. In particular, it's Paul's explanation for why he didn't come with, quote, lofty speech or wisdom. Paul says he didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom. Why? For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, I think there are two ways that we can interpret that explanation in verse 2. Either we can say that Paul's explaining why his speech was not regarded as wise, and that's because of its content. You know, you think of Paul at Mars Hill in Athens, for instance. And by the time he gets around to the resurrection, everybody starts bursting out laughing and mocking him. Because of how ridiculous it was to say that Jesus is raised from the dead. Maybe that's the idea here. He's saying he looks foolish because he's intentionally chosen to proclaim a foolish message. That would certainly make sense in light of the context. Paul just said that the message of the cross is regarded as foolish by the world. That God even means for it to be regarded as foolish. So it makes sense that Paul would say here, And when I came to you, I was regarded as foolish. Because I decided to know nothing among you but the cross. 
So he could mean that. He could be referring to the content of his message. Or we could say that Paul's explaining why he adopted a rather simplistic presentation of the gospel. Again, it would seem that Paul had a rather plain style of speaking. Perhaps this verse is explaining why, meaning maybe Paul is saying the reason he spoke this way, again, wasn't because he didn't have the ability and he didn't know how to give a powerful speech. Rather, it was because he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And do you know what the answer is between those two options? It's actually both. Paul is referring to both the content and the style of his delivery here. Back in chapter 1, verse 17, Paul said that he was sent to preach the gospel, and then he makes it a point of saying, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There, the, the phrase that Paul uses is Sophia Logu, the wisdom of words, and it can refer to either the style or the content of the message. Here, the phrase is, Uperkane Logu e Sophias, which means superiority of speech or wisdom. That's referring to both the content and the style of the message. You see a similar distinction here in verse 4, when Paul says that his speech and his message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Both his speech and his message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. He's saying neither the content nor the style were very appealing to his audience. For, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I tell you, it's this second element that I really want you to focus on here because even though he's talking about both the content and the style of his ministry, it really seems that his style is the main idea that he's concerned with here. Again, the comparison that seems to be happening at this point is between Paul and Apollos. We'll see this more clearly as we get into chapter 3, but it would seem that the Corinthians are contrasting Paul's ministry with Apollos' ministry. And they're opting for Apollos over Paul. That's not a distinction that Apollos seems to be encouraging, but it's a distinction the Corinthians are making nonetheless. Now, Paul and Apollos didn't preach a different message, but they most definitely had a different style. Apollos was a very eloquent speaker. He powerfully refuted the Jews in Corinth with his argumentation, we learn, in the book of Acts. And it would seem that the Corinthians are wondering why Paul doesn't speak like that. Here, Paul is telling them why he didn't speak like that. And it's because, verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's because, chapter 1, verse 17, He didn't want the cross of Christ to be emptied of its power. It's because, right here, verse 5, He didn't want their faith to rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So what's Paul getting at here? Why would Paul say, I wanted to communicate the cross of Christ alone? I wanted to communicate the cross of Christ alone. Therefore, I didn't come with a clever style. I mean, what does style have to do with it? For that matter, how would the way Paul communicate the message empty the cross of its power? I think you could answer that question in three ways. 
First, it would appear that Paul understood that if he communicated the gospel in a clever way, or perhaps even more specifically, in a way that appealed to uh, communities' cultural sensibilities, because that's what we're talking about with intellect here in Corinth. Intellectual sophistication was something that they valued as a people. Paul understood that if you did that, if he communicated the gospel in a way that appealed to their values as a culture, then no matter what the content was, the form would undermine God's purposes in the gospel. Again, the form would undermine God's purposes in the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, do you remember what we saw at the end of last week's passage about why God is choosing to save a foolish people through a foolish message? Paul says that God is doing things this way, verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Meaning God has a particular goal in mind in salvation, and that's the humiliation of mankind. And I don't mean embarrassment, by the way, when I say that. I mean humiliation in the sense of humbling. God intends for man to be humbled as a result of his salvation. We've actually been talking about this lately in Sunday school. God doesn't save man merely so he doesn't suffer the wrath of God in hell. Rather, he plucks the sinner from hell so he might be restored to the purpose for which he was created, and that's the worship of God. God made man in his image to glorify him, and so in salvation, he's restoring mankind back to the position he held at the first which is this state of humble adoration. And Paul explains this is why he saves a foolish people through a foolish message. He does it to save man in such a way that it is evident to everyone that the redeemed have nothing that they can boast in in his presence. They can't point to their political power or to their riches or to their intellect and say, well, that's why I'm saved. I did it. No, God saves in such a way that the only explanation is that God did it. And that leads the redeemed to boast in Him. Well, what Paul understood was that if he presented a clever, sophisticated argument for the gospel, then regardless how foolish the content is, his audience might still perceive from the packaging that it's a message of intellectual sophistication. And then when they believe, they'll think that it was their intellect that did it. And they'll take pride in the fact that they were so wise so as to believe this incredibly sophisticated argument. Basically, they would do precisely what the Corinthians seem to be doing here. They'll end up boasting in their flesh. And that runs contrary to the gospel. This is partly what Paul means when he says that he didn't preach with words of eloquent wisdom, quote, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The gospel is meant to leave a person realizing that they have nothing to boast in before God. So to preach the gospel in a way that leaves a person room for boasting, that would nullify the intent of the gospel. That's one reason why Paul didn't preach that way. He preached plainly, verse 5, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He wanted people walking away realizing that God was the only explanation for their salvation. That he alone was responsible. It had absolutely nothing to do with their own natural abilities. Second, and I think related to this idea, 
I think it's fairly reasonable to conclude that Paul understood what advertisers understand today. And that's the fact that the medium is the message. The medium is the message, meaning the mere way that you communicate something in and of itself is a message. It contains content. This is partly why advertisers pay celebrities like Kim Kardashian to endorse their products. You know, you can try to create an advertising slogan that says your product is stylish. But when you have a celebrity like Kim Kardashian who's made her name synonymous with a certain kind of style, endorsing it, well then you don't have to say it. Because the one who's saying it says it all for you. Paul understood this. He understood that if he presented a foolish message in an intellectually sophisticated package, then not only might that give his audience a reason for boasting, but they might confuse his point and think that the quote-unquote product that he's selling is a clever philosophical system or intellectual sophistication, social credibility, something like that, and not reconciliation to God through the blood of Christ. And for a people that value intellectual, intellectual sophistication like the Corinthians, that might mean they'll accept Christ because of the cultural respect they'll gain for becoming a Christian instead of what Paul's actually offering, which is the forgiveness of sins. Basically, they'll confuse the product and they'll purchase Christ thinking they're getting something different than what Paul's actually selling. So Paul stripped the message down to avoid that confusion. He wanted his audience to understand that he was selling only one thing, and that's a crucified Messiah. This is why he makes this connection between his style of ministry in verse 1 and the content of his ministry in verse 2. Paul says, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He says that because Paul understood that the style of his messaging affected his audience's perception of the content of his message. I want you to really think about the implications of these first two points before we move on to the third one. Paul is saying he communicated the gospel simply because he understood that the form of his message had the potential to undermine both the content and the purposes of the gospel. Let me say that one more time. The form of our presentation of the gospel, the form of our presentation of the gospel can undermine both the content and the purpose of the gospel. It can undermine both the content and the purpose of the gospel. And I tell you, I don't, I don't know that the church at large takes this idea into consideration very much. And the results can be pretty disastrous spiritually. Unfortunately, there's really no way for me to illustrate this point without treating the subject, I think, kind of superficially. So I know I'm not going to give a very nuanced take when I say this. But for instance, have you noticed that more and more the more quote-unquote successful churches tend to be sort of cool culturally. Again, I don't mean to go around burning straw men here. I don't mean to be the old man yelling at kids to get off his lawn. I'm not even saying that it's all intentional. Some people simply dress or act a certain way that's because that's just who they are. That's who they were when God saved them, and so now they're living that out for the sake of Christ. 
That said, it would seem as if there's an effort by some church leaders to intentionally adopt specific cultural accoutrements at times in order to be seen as hip or relevant by the culture. I'm not going to try to name any specific examples because there's no way to do that without assigning motives to specific actions, so I'll just make the observation. And I would imagine that if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. You have your own examples in your head. I want you to consider, what do you think that communicates to the culture when a church or church leader intentionally adopts that kind of practice? There almost seems to be this attempt at times to try to make it as easy as possible to come to Christ, to try to tell the world, wait, you don't actually have to change to become a Christian. You can basically remain as you are. Just say that Jesus is Lord. Only they don't say it with their content. They would never say that explicitly. Instead, it said implicitly by the form of the message. And I want you to understand Jesus didn't communicate the gospel this way. Paul didn't communicate the gospel this way. Instead, they went in the opposite direction. Take Jesus, for instance. He often picked the one thing that he knew his audience loved most. And then he made it a point to say, just know that if you want to follow me, then you have to give up that specific thing. Otherwise, you can't be my disciple. I mean, the rich young ruler, the man who wants to bury his father, his words on loving him more than your own friends and family, even more than your own life, even the whole exchange about eating his blood or eating his uh, body and drinking his blood in John 6. Every time Jesus goes out of his way to say, if there are any conditions to following me, if there's anything that makes you say, I won't follow you if it costs me that, then you're not ready to be my disciple. He demands unconditional surrender. And that goes back to the very purpose of the gospel again. God wants to humble man, to put him back into submission, back into a place of worship. And so if someone is saying, I don't know. I don't know. I don't mind being a Christian, I guess. But not if it means people think I'm not culturally relevant. Not if it means I'm going to have to be seen as a nerd or a fundamentalist or something like that. Do you know what Paul would do in that situation? Do you know what Jesus would do? They'd make it a point to tell you how the gospel is going to make you uncool. They wouldn't try to accommodate the, that desire. They'd attack it. Now, I know when I say all this, I'm picking on the idea of trendiness here, but you could say the same thing of any other kind of quality that people boast in, that they take pride in, that they cherish. They wouldn't try to accommodate a person's desires for intellectual respectability or financial well-being, again, they'd attack it. They'd say, be ready to be treated like a fool. Be ready to give away all your possessions. And that's because to communicate the gospel in any other way would undermine either the content or the purpose of the gospel. It would either leave people coming to Christ because of the worldly, worldly things they think they'll attain in Christ, or even if they come for the cross itself, they'll still be left with some room for boasting. Friends, believe it or not, this is how you engage a spiritually hostile culture. You don't meet it halfway. I think that's what a lot of people think you need to do. You've got to meet it halfway. No. You actually pull hard in the other direction. 
Again, that seems counterintuitive. As we see the culture pulling away from us, we're probably prone to think that we've got to chase them, that we've got to engage them, quote unquote, on their turf. But it's not true. Yes, we go out into the world to proclaim Christ, but we're in no way required to act like the world in order to convince them. Quite the opposite. If anything, the scripture tells us to pull in the opposite direction. Now, you may say, but no one's going to believe if we do that. This is evangelistic suicide to try to act weird. <laughs> and that leads me to the third reason why Paul implies that a persuasive or culturally adapted style would void the cross of Christ. And that's the fact that Paul seems to have understood that such a style would only create false converts. He understood that if he used persuasive words of wisdom, the only result that could possibly come out of that would be future apostates. One of the overarching theological themes of this section is the sovereignty of God and salvation. This started back in chapter 1. It's going to hit a climax in our next passage where Paul talks about the spiritual man discerning spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. It even continues into chapter 3 when Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Paul understood that the only way a person could come to Christ was if God supernaturally opened their eyes to the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. Meaning, Paul understood that he was actually spiritually impotent. He knew that he could not produce anything of spiritual value through his own efforts. He knew there was nothing he could do to convince a person to believe because salvation is a spiritual work. Quite frankly, no amount of argumentation was sufficient to bring a person to salvation. It's like, it's like trying to convince a dead man to get up and rise. It's a waste of time because they can't hear you. So then if Paul makes an argument and the person believes in the power of his argument, what does that mean? Are they spiritually alive? Or have they merely been convinced by the power of the flesh? And Paul would say, it would be sort of hard to tell. And that's a problem, because if it's the second type, if it's someone who's just been convinced by the power of argumentation, not only will that not get a person into the kingdom of heaven, but they probably won't even persevere in the faith in this life. That seems to be at least partly what Paul is addressing in chapter 3 about being careful about the foundation he built on. Paul was worried that he might produce fake fruit through the power of persuasion. And so he was careful to avoid that. If I could put it this way, ladies and, ladies and gentlemen, Paul understood the power of a sales pitch. You see, through the power of words, you can get a person to do just about anything you want. It's how the deceitful used car salesman convinces the customer to buy a lemon. Right? They get you away from the bare facts which state that what you're about to buy is a lemon and then they paint a picture for you. They get you in the car and they explain to you how great life is going to be in this new car. You know, they, you walk up to the car and it doesn't have a roof. And you tell the salesman, I don't know. 
I mean, that, the car doesn't have a roof. Why would I want to buy that one? And they go, I know. I mean, who doesn't want a convertible, right? Just imagine cruising through the countryside with the wind blowing through your hair and this baby. And you say, I don't know. It looks pretty old. All rusty. And they go, right. This is vintage. This is, a, this is a classic automobile. This is so old. This car is only going to appreciate in value. You look under the hood and there's no engine, right? And you go, who do, you go, there's no engine. How am I supposed to drive this thing? And they go, who would want an engine? This car is so cool. The party's going to come to you, right? And in the, the pressure of the moment, you make an emotional choice. And it's only afterwards you realize that you don't like what you bought. And that you made a decision you don't agree with based on your emotions. Paul understood that. He understood that if he presented an emotional or clever appeal, a person might be manipulated into the Christian life without understanding what the cross really meant. Paul knew if he didn't help people understand the stark reality of the cross, if he didn't make sure that his listeners knew that what he was actually proclaiming was a crucified God who was crucified because of the absolute wickedness of human hearts, that if he didn't do this, that he was just training people for future apostasy. They'd drive the gospel home, examine it, and then they'd realize that they actually don't believe any of what Paul said. That they've been duped. And then they'd just walk away. I think this is absolutely fascinating, this point. Again, in Paul's day, good speakers were renowned for their ability to convince an audience to accept their viewpoint no matter what the cost. If it meant using eloquent speech to tug at the heartstrings or stir the emotions, then that was fine. If it meant changing the logical reasons for an argument based on who you were talking to, that was fine. The intended goal for the audience was fixed, and good speakers would use whatever means necessary to get their audience there. And by that, I don't mean they necessarily lied or something like that, but, but say one audience found uh, statistics to be the most compelling type of evidence, uh, whereas another preferred anecdote, well, then it was expected that the speaker would provide statistics to one audience and then use anecdotes with the next. Or if you can think of it like an advertisement, say for a bar of soap, a gifted orator would realize that one type of audience valued soap's cleaning power, whereas another is going to value affordability. And so when they're talking to one audience, they'll talk about the soap's cleaning power and then turn around and sell the other audience on its affordability. Meaning Paul would change his appeal for why they should buy, or, or the, the, the speaker rather, would change his appeal for why they should buy his product from one audience to another in order to get the desired result. And what we see here is that Paul didn't speak this way. For him, it was the exact opposite. Again, he was still sensitive to cultural, the cultural setting of his audience, and he might find some element from their culture to connect with so they can understand what he's talking about. Again, one thinks of his appeal to Greek poetry when he preached, at, preached the gospel at Mars Hill, as an example. But all the same, he didn't try to adjust his message in such a way as to make it more convincing from one audience to another through the force of his argumentation. 
He didn't say to himself, well, the Philippians find this type of evidence convincing, whereas the, convin the Corinthians are convinced by this other type. So I'll use the one type in Philippi, and then I'll switch it up and use the other in Corinth. Still less did he say, you know, the Philippians want eternal life, and Corinthians want cultural respectability, so I'll show the Philippians how the gospel gives eternal life, and then I'll show the Corinthians how it's culturally respectable. He didn't do that. Instead, he simply proclaimed the message, plain and simple, without any real effort of making it persuasive. If anything else, there's a sense in which by the world standards, Paul almost looks like the salesman who's trying to talk his customers out of the product. He's telling them, you know, the engine's cracked. The body's completely rusted out. Sometimes, I mean, I mean, you can see through the floorboard when you're driving in it. The brakes work most of the times. And it's got something like 300,000 miles on it. But I'll tell you truthfully, I don't even know if the person who brought it in here, in, here, in here didn't steal it. And the world is left standing there going, okay, and, and how much did you say that that costs again? And his answer is, well, how much do you got? Because while it's absolutely free, it's going to cost you everything. Now, of course, it's not that the cross is actually the equivalent of a broken down beater of a car. But by the world's standards, it looks that way. And Paul isn't actually trying to talk anyone uh, out of uh, faith in Christ here. Again, he just wants them to know what they're getting, meaning he doesn't try to convince them, but he does proclaim the gospel. And he does this so that when they do believe, they don't believe because of Paul's argument, because of man's wisdom. Rather, it's a genuine faith. He does it so that when they believe, they believe because of the power of God. Again, think about this in light of how the church tends to approach evangelism today. I don't know if you know this, but there are churches that will actually assess the quote-unquote felt needs of their community. They'll take a step back, they'll say, what is it the people in our community want? And then they'll intentionally adjust the packaging of their message to address those felt needs. People want a kid's ministry, so let's give them a kid's ministry. Uh, they don't like the formality of church, so let's find a way to make it less formal and more accommodating. Uh, people don't like long messages, so let's keep it to 20 to 25 minutes. They want help with their marriage and their kids, so let's give messages that address marriage and parenting. And they do all this in order to boost their attendance numbers, to get more people to walk in the church doors. Now, I want to be clear here. I think most of these churches mean well when they do this, so don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to attack people's motives here or say that these people are wolves in sheep's clothing or something like that. I don't think they do it, I think they, I don't think they do it simply because they're trying to earn some level of social status or to make more money or something like that. I think most of the time, most of the time, they're genuinely concerned with the advance of the gospel. They want to see people come to know Christ, and they're trying to be aggressive with the gospel, which to some extent is commendable. I mean, I, I read the parable of the talents, and, and I can't help but think that at least some of them will actually be praised by Christ for their willingness to do something to advance the gospel instead of sitting on their hands and doing nothing. So again, please hear me. I'm not trying to attack or tear down my brothers and sisters in Christ when I say this. But that said, well-intentioned or not, I think they do adopt practices that Paul 
intentionally avoid it. They intentionally cater to their audience's felt needs in order to boost attendance figures. And do you know what? It totally works. It totally works, or at least in one sense it does. It, it, it gets people to show up. And it's these types of ministries that can look really impressive. It can look like their methods are working. But you know what this type of methodology doesn't do? It doesn't change hearts. It doesn't make the dead rise. Meaning that's something that no, that's something that no amount of manipulation to a message can do. It doesn't matter how much you adjust the packaging to make the gospel more appealing on the outside. At the end of the day, it's simply impossible for the spiritually dead to see this message as good news and believe. And unfortunately, this means that often what you're left with is filler in the body of Christ. There are people who are showing up, but they're showing up for the wrong reasons. It goes back to our previous two points. They're coming because they're confused what they're being sold. You know, they're they're buying family values or they're coming because the gospel satisfies their desire for cultural relevance or intellectual sophistication or something like that. So yeah, they're coming to church, but not because of what God's selling. They're trying to buy something like that. Either that or they come for the right content, but without the right attitude. They're still clinging to some idol that they love more than Jesus and they're only showing up because they think the church is telling them they can serve Jesus and that idol at the same time. As soon as they realize the gospel is going to cost them their respectability or their comfort or their earthly pleasures, they're gone. Again, these ministries look successful, but it's a mirage. And again, this seems to be exactly the sort of thing that Paul was intentionally trying to avoid when he says that he was careful about the foundation that he built on, that that foundation was Christ, and then warns about those who try to build on another foundation. This is chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. He says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul wasn't interested in building a mansion made of straw. Rather, he wanted to build a structure that would survive the day of judgment. And this is why he was careful not to persuade people, but to simply declare the cross of Christ. I'll say it one more time. I'm not meaning to attack here. <clears throat> Rather, I'm trying to say that we have to be intentional about avoiding that approach to evangelistic ministry where we would try to make the gospel persuasive. I mean, just consider what kind of impact that this type of ministry has had considering what we talked about last week. Do you remember the main idea of last week's message? How does God shame the world? Through the church, right? The church is God's rope-a-dope. He invites the world to mock the church and then he strikes his knockout blows as he displays his power and wisdom through the transformed lives of his people. So what do you think this does to the gospel when the church is known not for their perseverance in righteousness and faith but for their hypocrisy and apostasy? 
I can assure you it's nothing good. I'm not saying that we can convince people to come in through the power of our testimony. That would be to swap out one appeal to the flesh for another. All I'm saying is that at the very least, it confuses the world's understanding of the gospel instead of clarifying it. So let's bring all this back to your proclamation of the gospel in a philosophically hostile world. I know I'm talking quite a bit about church ministry at large in my examples here, and I'm doing this because of the sort of thing uh, that we're in right now here at Cornerstone. We're talking about going back to the fundamentals of our ministry, to thinking uh, fresh about how we operate as a church. And so that's why I'm talking about corporate church ministry here. But let's talk about you for a moment. What does this passage tell you about how you should proclaim the gospel in an increasingly hostile culture spiritually? What it tells you is that all you need to do is declare the truth. You see, when I say that you engage a philosophically hostile culture by declaring the cross of Christ alone, you might think that the emphasis in that statement is on the word alone. That I'm saying, be sure to guard the content of your message, but that that's actually not the only thing I'm trying to say here. I'm saying guard the style of your message as well. That's where the declare part comes in. It has to do with the style of the presentation. You know, in the ancient world, it wasn't uncommon for a royal messenger or herald to show up in a town and proclaim a message to that town from the emperor or king. And when the herald did that, they simply announced their message. There wasn't any kind of discussion over what the herald said. You know, if the herald was announcing some new edict, for instance, he didn't try to persuade his listeners to obey the command of their king. There was no pleading. There was no haggling over terms. No, he simply declared, thus says the king. And then that was that. When I say that you engage the culture by declaring the cross of Christ alone, I'm also saying that you do that. You not only proclaim the one message, but you proclaim it the one way. You declare it. Of course, by that, I don't mean that you may not try to answer people's questions or that it's wrong to, to press people to really think about why they're rejecting the gospel. Rather, what I'm saying is that you shouldn't feel the need to try to convince them that this is true. Instead, take your cue from the Apostle Paul and simply declare the cross of Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, I tell you, the challenge before us is incredibly great. And yet the solution is so very simple. Yes, the gap between us and the world is wide and getting wider. But what we've seen today is that in order to bridge that gap, we don't have to try to meet the world halfway in their thinking. We don't even need to try to convince them of the merits of Christ. Instead, we just need to be faithful to preach the gospel. We just need to share Christ and the rest, as they say, is in God's hands. Now, this isn't the end of the discussion. There's still one more principle that we need to employ if we're going to successfully engage the culture with the message of the cross. What is that principle? I'd encourage you to come back and find out in part two of this message next week. Let's pray.